In a world full of boring stories, bad videos, and marketing misinformation, one very tall man with a weird last name will use his microphone. Use his video marketing knowledge the red button, right? and use his friends Please be on the show. to change that. You are listening to The Garlic Marketing Show with Ian. What? No, that's how you pronounce it. Well, if you say so, your host, Ian Garlic. Welcome to another awesome episode of the Garlic Marketing Show. I'm Garlic here, and my guest today, you know, we've had on some incredible guests. My guest today is Canadian, so you might not have heard of him, but I think he's a superstar. I've seen him speak a few times, and then when I'm going through his bio, it's just kind of overwhelming because it's like, oh, yeah, his company works with Johnson Johnson, speaks 69 times a year. Listen to this. Not only does he run an agency, he's been trained at Second City, spoke 69 times this year, hosts the Art of Conferences. Just publish a book. Also help publish another bestseller. Ron Tight, just perennially funny too. And every stage I've seen you on. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Ina. I think your guests were probably going expecting you to say, please welcome Justin Trudeau. No, they'd know better than that. I don't want to bore them. <laughs> Ron, so tell me a little, you have this awesome background. You, you started in improv and then you moved into the agency space. Can you tell me how that progression happened? Yeah, I was... So I was always working in advertising, and I was an account guy, though, that running the Intel business for a large multinational organization, a uh, large agency. And I always loved stand-up as a craft. I just I just loved stand-up. And just as a kid, like, looking at the method behind the madness and what was the – what was the – you know, how did you construct a set and what was the insights into getting to the funny and all that stuff. And so I, I, I went to Second City, which I think improv is, you know, all musicians take piano. You know, I think all comedians should take improv. I think improv is the piano of comedy. And so while I was never a great improviser, uh, improv certainly helped propel me into this world of stand-up. So I was a, a touring stand-up for 10 years, was never Second City main stage, but tour, trained there was on the corporate roster at Second City for a long time, and and now still actually host a, a, a comedy show once a month called Monkey Toast, which is me and about six Second City alum here in Toronto. It's a, it's a live show. But the, the, the move between those two worlds was really interesting because I think really early on I realized that if I – what I learned in comedy made me a better advertising guy because I eventually moved into the creative department as a writer – so what I did in comedy made me a better advertising writer. And what I did in advertising certainly made me a better comedian because it, com it completely opened up my perspective on the world. Because there are a lot of comedians who just, you know, they're cool comedians and they live in this insular world of, you know, stand-ups and people who go to auditions all day. And, and that's, you know, um, that's not something that I think makes you um, – that, that's not great for the general public. So we'll improv. So – um, you became uh, so you you went, actually went into improv training to improve yourself, which I love. I love that uh, that because I think it's an amazing bit of training. You know, I've done it a few times, and I think it could help anyone. So, how do you now carry that into your business? What was the path that you brought to bring it into your business? Like, what? When did you? How did you start using it? You know, I guess there are two sides to that. There's the business side of it, which is how do you go from doing stand up and improv 
to speaking, which is generating revenue, to integrating that into the business. So the, the first thing was that I really wanted to control my destiny more. As the speaking started to grow when I was at, at you know the other agency, uh, I first started by saying, you know what, don't give me a raise, give me more time off so I could speak more. So, and I'd make more in doing the speaking than I would have got as a raise. So it started there. And then I wanted to control my destiny more, kind of use the speaking, I absolutely loved it, but used it to test out thought leadership and to use it for business development for something I owned. So it's like, if I start my own thing, now I have a better control of my world and then I can make the decisions and not have to report into somebody. So there's that side of things. In terms of how improv as a skill or as a craft is a part of the business. I think that's really interesting, and a lot of people can use it. There are rules of improv. You know, we all know the yes and one, and it's used far too often, but it's still true that when you look at innovation, when you look at creativity, the rule of improv where you don't know where this is going, but you have to embrace the chaos and make the best decisions along the way and not follow the script and be a great supporter because it's about the scene. It's not about you as a performer. You know, all those things are such great messages that any business person should use. So, you know, you want to see a really collaborative, innovative environment? Go see an amazing improv show and you see people working together. That's teamwork. And so, you know, I consciously and sometimes subconsciously, you know, bring those skills in to the agency. And that was so true what you said. It's just like, yes, and the controlled chaos and just seeing where it goes. I mean, that's the heart of being an entrepreneur, the heart of being a business owner, because if you think it's going to be clean and nice and step by step, I mean, is there, I can't remember a day that was like that. If business people controlled improv, right, the first line of dialogue would be, okay, we open up on a mother and a daughter in Phoenix, Arizona, and then somebody would step up and go, okay, what's the forecasted laughs on this? And before we do anything, let's just lay some groundworks, and then you do the scene and then everybody would want to post mortem on what just happened and analyze like really let's just put one foot in front of the other <laughs> oh man have you done any scenes like that the mental note that i made to myself was we got to explore that scene actually more what if business people were in charge of improv this is kind of a funny premise <laughs> yeah actually we so we're doing our holiday video right now and we went through this whole improv thing to to get to it and the thing is, what you know? What if Santa started doing digital marketing? And it's kind of along the same lines. It's like all those buzzwords. And then the parents are like, "Well, what do you think the ROI of the gifts are? Do we, should we amplify this post? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, it writes itself after a while, right? <laughs> so now you've developed the tight group, which is your content marketing agency. And one of the things I love when I'm going through your website is this line. And I had to read it like three or four times. <laughs> it's very zen. The public deserves more of what they want to see and less of what they have to see, regardless of who pays for it or the channel it's on. Yep. How long did it take you to, to write that? Well, I think, you know, when I, what's interesting is that when I started the tight group with no clients and no staff, you know, it was just me. And I tried to figure out like where agencies were going and what the best value an agency could offer to clients. And so I analyzed the full ecosystem. Because a lot of people just go and go, what's the agency problem? It's not an agency problem. It's an entire marketing ecosystem problem that starts with national broadcasters and media sellers and producers and media planners and buyers all the way through the whole thing. We're all in this together. So people go, oh, big agencies are losing money now. Like, eh, you know what? So are big newspapers. So we're all in this together. So I looked at that ecosystem and said, what are some common threads? The first thing 
that I wrote was that brands have to be media properties and media properties have to be brands. That if a brand is going to survive, they have to have the editorial credibility that a media property has. They have to think like a media property. They can't think like a commercial. They got to think like a media property. So that has to stand there. But at the same time, media properties, they can't just be, if you're a newspaper, you can't just be a newspaper anymore. You have to go across all platforms. You got to extend your brand into other spaces and to slicing and dicing your content, all that. So that was the first line that Brands have to be media properties, and media properties have to be brands. And I didn't even know what that meant at the time. (laughs) I just said, let's just figure that out. Like, that's our guiding principle. How do we do that? Do we work with broadcasters? Do we work with brands? What's the space? So that was the first thing. And then when we looked at, okay, what type of stuff are we developing? Yeah, it was just as we started to compare the advertising environment which is, well, how is this not advertising? Well, it's not advertising because people should seek this stuff out. And that's the only way you're going to survive. Because if people have to see your message, they're going to flip past the page really quickly. They're going to ignore the banner. They're going to ignore the mobile ad. They're going to, you know, PVR past the 30-second TV commercial. Or they're going to engage environments like Netflix and Amazon where there is no advertising there. So nobody in the history of the world has ever bought a magazine for the ads. <laughs> they don't. They just don't. And it was a great deal where the advertising subsidized the cost of the magazine and we all put up with it. But nobody tuned into a TV show because the ads were so great, maybe outside of the Super Bowl. Yep. So to compete in this new world, brands have to wrap their head around the fact that they got to create stuff that people want to see and consume. And they'll say, well, but people don't want to interact with brands. No. People don't want to interact with shitty commercials. That's what they don't want to interact with. <laughs> you know, they're more than happy if your spot or your piece of content is compelling or it adds a lot of value or it's hilarious. They don't care who pays for it. They really don't. Good stuff is good stuff. And they'll consume it from whoever puts it in front of them. I agree 100%. I think even the opposite is true. People want to connect with the companies they buy from, right? They they want to connect on some level. They're like, I mean, Apple is a perfect example. How big of a connection do people have with that? We want to connect with our food sources, our water sources, and but we've been taught that it's this like top down in your face model instead of have entertaining people first. And I always come back to that Walt Disney quote, you know, basically I seek to entertain first and if I happen to educate, great. And yeah. and so the gist of your book that's out now, right? It's everyone's an artist. How creativity gives you the edge in everything you do. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, that's. Can you explain to me how you go about teaching that in that book? Yeah, there's a couple of parts to it. So the first part is that the idea that everybody is an artist, right? So we used to go, well, that's the freak. That's the person. I'm not. An, there's no way I'm an artist because I I don't know what a Hasselblad camera is and I can't afford, afford canvases and whatnot. Well, now we're all taking pictures of our food and we're being really creative with the creative tools that are available to us. So now we've got the means to be creative and we've always had the inspiration and the desire to do it. You know, you put a PowerPoint deck in front of somebody and they're like, all right, watch me animate this stuff. <laughs> You know, they, that when we're given an opportunity to be creative, people want to do it. We've always been creative beings, and we've wanted to always express ourselves from the time we were kids, right? Kids, you, they're like, they look at their parents and they go, you know, I'm going to wear a cape today. You know, and parents think, well, they're getting bullied, beat up today. You know, this is not going to go well. But kids want to do that. And it's only when we have these external criticisms of that those forms of expression that we begin to think, "Mm, maybe it's not cool. 
So maybe I actually shouldn't do that because somebody didn't like it. And so we bury it and we bury it and we bury it. And next thing you know, we're 40 years old. We're wearing Levi's Dockers and driving a minivan and, you know, you know, hating the life we built for ourselves. But so it is, you know, we are all creative beings and now we have the tools to match the desire. The, the second part of that is there are behaviors of those people who are real artists, who sell creativity every single day for their living. And taking a picture of, of your food isn't enough. Then we really have to incorporate all these other behaviors that, that artists have because creativity is winning the day. Call it innovation, call, you know, whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, innovation is creative thinking. And so if we want to express – if we want to succeed – and win the battle for time, regardless of what our job is, it's about creativity. So let's look to those people who produce it every single day. And I, I, I mean, in North America, we're holding on to this idea of industrial output, that our output, and we got to hold these jobs, you know, are making something physical in, in a factory when really it's our, our real industry is creativity, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and that we, we the sooner we learn it, the better our economies are all going to be. Because eventually, if something can be made over and over again, a robot's going to make it. Yep. Yeah, that's it's fantastic. And because if you look back now on your history and how in, imbuing creativity into it has made you that much better, that much more awesome, I love it because you have this artist side and this business side. And I think that's a necessary thing for both sides. If you're an artist and you want to make money, you have to become more of a business person. And if you're a business person, you want to become more of an artist. So what do you think's the one thing that one the one place that your average entrepreneur could go to start becoming more creative? Well, you know, there's a there's a couple of things. I mean, one I think that we have to accept this fact that we can do it. So I think people we've you know, the example I use in the book is Apple's think different campaign. You know, here's to the crazy ones, to the rebels, the misfits, the square pegs in the round holes. And so we painted this picture of great creative beings as the freaks of society that you can never live up to. So what? You're going to tell me I've got to be like Pablo Picasso? That I've got to be like Einstein? That I've got to be like, that's not me. I've got to be like the Beatles? I can't do that. Because I'm a dude that's an assistant brand manager at a CPG out of New Jersey. Like that, you know. <laughs> and, and that... I love that spot. It's one of my all-time favorite spots. The writing on it is fantastic, but it's wrong. It's just wrong that we we don't have to, you know, wear black and listen to indie music and and be anti-establishment to be creative. So that I think is one of the biggest hurdles that we can do it. The second part of that is that people think, oh, well, if you're creative, then you're just creative, and it's like boom. <laughs> Snap my fingers and great creative things come, you know, my fingertips go to the keyboard and now I'm just typing brilliantly written copy and great jokes. No, are you kidding me? That's offensive. It's offensive to those of us who actually work at being creative. You think I wake up in the morning and, and you know, think of a great speech and just, no, this is work. But that's how I imagine well, it. That's what I want to yeah. believe. <laughs> but it's work, right? Like yeah. you got to roll up your sleeves and you got to suck. Every once in a while, and you got to and you got to work through stuff. So, one of the rules, or, or one of the exercises that I use to get over the thinking is something that is an old improv game called Third Choice, and I use it in stand up, and I use it in speaking, and I use it in business. So, in Third Choice, in the improv game, you say there once was a boy, and his name was, and someone says Frank, and you go second choice, and he goes uh, uh, um, Jonathan. 
like third choice, you know, like, uh, Barbara, you know, and so you have to force yourself into one acknowledging your first choice. So you have to write it down and go, this is the first choice. And for in business, a lot of us do like the first choice is the thing that we did yesterday or the same thing that we did last year. Right. So you go, what's the theme for this year's Christmas party? All right. What we do last year? Oh, the crazy elves. OK, that's the first choice. I'm writing it down. That's the first choice. And then consciously force yourself to think of the second, the third, the fourth. And then what you'll find as you as you go down and it becomes increasingly uncomfortable, uh, you know, like first choice, you'll rifle off. No problem. Second choice, eh, a little bit of thought. Boom. No problem. Third choice. And you're like, uh, you want me to come up third one? And now we stammer and we think and we get nervous and our heart starts to race and we don't know. And we blurt out something that might seem stupid. And then we think about it and we go, ah, Barbara's actually a really funny choice for a little boy's name. <laughs> what if we use that? And it doesn't mean that it's always going to be right. But you just have to consciously establish third choice to uh, to get you away from the most boring, the you know, the most safe and the most logical choice, which are always the first choice off the top of your head. Oh, yeah. That's, that's an amazing tip because we use it all the time in everything that we do at the agency because I'm like, well, let's make something – do something uncomfortable. Let's do something uncomfortable. And it ends up being so much better. And people think that that big idea came first, but it's really working through it. And I, I love that. And so you work with Johnson & Johnson. You work with these big brands. How do you get them to accept the third choice? Well, I wish I could say that it's easy and they, they come flocking and they do it without hesitation. But I also understand that it's difficult for big brands. There's a regulatory body for some of them. You know, there's legal that has to get involved. And they've got a – they report in through New York who reports in through Paris who, you know, like – it, it, the layers upon layers for big global organization, it's really, really difficult. And so we'll come in and we'll sell the thinking, we'll, you know, which is why they, why they come to us. But then when it gets down into execution, ah, that's when it becomes a little tricky, right? That's when people retreat and go, well, but where's my, where's my pack shot? And where's my call to action? Where's all the things that I've been trained, you know, as a CPG marketer to do? And those things are a little tricky to walk away from. Because the problem with the third choice is that it might not be right. So as you get more and more uncomfortable, it might tank. So people may look and go, Barbara, as a little boy's name, that's the stupidest thing I've heard. And so it's so easy to go, I'm stopping at the first choice, or even though I'm going to third choice, I'm going to retreat back to the first choice because I kind of know what I got last year with that. And I'm going to, you know, I'd rather go with the devil I know than the devil I don't. So I know what the ROI and I was, I know what it delivered and that's not going to get me fired. So it's trying to get a client to go from, do you want to go from the person who's simply not going to get fired to the person who really is going to get promoted? You know, it's, do you want to win, you know, the sporting contest? Do you want to win or do you not want to not lose? And I think great creativity takes boldness of people who actively want to win. Trying simply not to lose is much safer thing to do. And I, I get that. I get that somebody's got three kids and they got a house and a mortgage and sometimes they want to play not to lose. 
Yeah. But you know what, as you're saying that all those thoughts, like if you're a small, medium sized business and you're, you know, you have the final say, you don't have to go through the corporate ladder to get that, that, then that becomes your advantage, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I remember having a conversation at previous agency, which was a wonderful agency and great people, but you know, that we identified that our, our compensation ratio so the percentage of our revenue that was dedicated to compensation was at 58.5% and that the figure it should have been was 57.5%. And those were the global standards that was put down by the holding company. And that's what they, and I totally get it. If you want to play in that world, that's, those are the rules, right? And so now I, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to start my own agency was to not have to live up to that and that I wanted to make bold choices and invest where I thought there were better options and you know be able to turn very very quickly and pivot into a different area. So yeah, you're right. My clients don't have the benefit of being able to do that. So you have to balance out what you're consulting and what you're advising your clients to do with how you apply that to your own agency. So true, so true. So you talked about things tanking. You talked about third choice tanking. Well, can you give me an example of of a third choice tanking for you? especially like in the marketing field? Last week, I hosted a very large writer's gala for, and we're talking the most brilliant published authors in the country, best-selling authors. It was like 800 people, black tie event. And I was hosting and I decided to do something different and it tanked completely. <laughs> there is no worse feeling than standing before 800 people. It was the worst gig I've had in a decade. Oh, man. <laughs> but you're never going to find the new gold, right? Yep. You're never going to find the new gold and unless you dig. And sometimes you get dirty when you dig. And that's fine. In the marketing world, I think there's such a fine line between brilliant and ridiculously stupid. And we don't know where that is sometimes, or sometimes we don't agree where that line is. That's the problem, right? That those who are making the stuff have a different idea of what's interesting or what's funny or what's compelling, and those signing off on it do not, or those consumers con- you know, consuming the content don't share that sensibility. So you're constantly, the closer you get to the line, the more brilliant the work is, but one step over and you're done. <laughs> it's uh, not easy and that could be anything from a strategy saying you know what we're we're eliminating all external advertising we're going 100% on sponsorship that's what we're going to do because this is bold and this is new and this is innovative and then at the end of the end, you're like that didn't drive the business results we thought <laughs> that's so true oh man yeah it, it, it's scary, right? And, and that's the thing is like, because when you make big, bold choices to win, you got to face your fears. But at the end of the day, how much risk can you tolerate? What's your biggest success when it comes to that third choice? When's that time when you're like, man, that really worked out and I wasn't sure it was going to? I can't think of one specifically. You know, there's, there's been so many, right? Like, I think you, you, it's those small little victories along the way. I, I guess the bigger ones, like at the agency, for example. So, the thing that everybody does when they build an agency or when they build a business is the rule is you never give up equity. You don't. You don't give up equity. You do bonus pools. You do everything else. And I said, nope, that's the first choice. Never give up equity. Second choice is you compensate people on a bonus structure. But the third choice is you give up equity. And I did that. A year in, I gave up equity. So now, because I knew that I'm not an operations guy and did not want to run a business day to day, I knew that I wanted professionals in early in the process and I don't want employees. I want partners. And I also knew that 
I wanted, you know, I'd much prefer to own, you know, 30% of 5X than 100% of X. So I gave up equity very early on after a year in business. And now there are four of us uh, who have equity in this business. Everybody's got skin in the game. Uh, You want commitment? You know what? Give people a piece of the business. And so that, I think, was a really interesting third choice, which was completely bucked the trend and ignored all the advice that everybody was giving me. And it's worked out beautifully. I love that story. That's a great story. Just because there's rules out there doesn't mean they're, they're not supposed to be broken. Nope. And you can do it. It's just that it didn't work for someone else. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's so great. So on the content side, let's talk content strategy. What are the content strategies that are working for you guys right now? I mean, you're a content marketing agency. You're out there. You're speaking. You're putting out content all the time. Do you mean working for our clients or for our agency? Either one. Well, what I find that is interesting if you say content strategy, because that can mean a million things to a million different people. Mm-hmm. And what we find is that many brands are choosing to check content boxes. So they're going, we need to be on Snapchat. And they check that box. And then they go, we need a podcast or, you know, and they check that box or a web series. You know, the number of phone calls I get from production companies saying, we got a web series. We need a brand to fund it is ridiculous. (laughs) So we don't take that approach at all. That, so we have a very specific process and it doesn't matter if it's internal content for recruitment, if it's external content for existing customers, external content for acquisition, whatever, does not matter. And the, the, we follow the process every single time. And it, so the way we approach it is the first thing you need is a brand belief. You need a higher order thread that's going to go through every single piece of content that you have, regardless of whether it's a Facebook post or a podcast or whatever. doesn't matter. What's the higher or what's the thing you believe in that what's the purpose, not the product? So we start there. And that can take six months getting that with proprietary research and everything else, or it could be 10 minutes. This, the next stage that we look at is like, okay, what's the external communication of that? And so we call that a content platform. So what's the platform? And I don't mean po- platform like, you know, social media platform. What is the creative thread that is now going to run through this brand belief? So, you know, I think one of the be- the best of all time still to this day is IBM Smarter Planet. You know, Smarter Planet was a content platform which allowed them to deliver white papers and slide chairs and speeches and exhibits and everything. It wasn't a campaign. It was really a content platform. And it was linked graphically and it was linked with the same tone and everything else. So that's the second step. Then after that, then you get into content choices. So what are the things? And those are based on media habits of consumers. And you can look at the consumer journey of where they need content along that path towards acquisition. So what are search terms and what is content you can develop to influence organic search? What is a video strategy? All that kind of stuff. Um, And then you get into you know, a content calendar with distribution. So, okay, if we know that we're doing a podcast and we're doing three blog posts and we're doing some social stuff, well, what's the distribution of that? Where is it going? What eyeballs are we getting in front of? Are we partnering with people, existing media players? Are we do? Are we sending it out to an owned audience? Uh, you know, what? what is it? How are we getting in front of people? And then the last part is what are the KPIs on that on that calendar? So that's a really rough and very fast way that we look at every single thing we're working on. So we're working on right now, we're working on promoting the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC, the television network. We're, we're looking at uh, promoting their winter season. 
We use that process. We're looking at uh, doing stuff for Microsoft, who's a client. We use that process. You know, uh, Good Life Gyms, we use that process. So that's how we approach content strategy. I, love, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that. That's so valuable. And it's a great, I mean, it's a high level. But if people were to follow that instead of going, hey, we're going to do podcasts. Hey, we're going to do. Yeah, that's the problem, right? Everyone's just doing random shit. And it doesn't tie back to anything. There is no greater platform that it's leveraging. And, and the people go, I don't know. We tried a podcast. It didn't work. Well, I had some <laughs> ideas why. You know? Because awesome. you're just doing random stuff. Awesome. So, Ron, you, you know, you're an awesome speaker. I love you. I, it, every time I see you, oh, thank you. It, it's it's insightful, hilarious, entertaining. I'm never like I never get distracted. Which I that's that right there saying big thing because I'm usually like oh look at that oh there, there, is there a bird over there? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just got an email. I better check that. <laughs> yeah, um, you know how has speaking influenced your business? On a couple of different fronts. First of all, you know, it's because you you constantly have to stay fresh in front of your audiences. So you're constantly seeking out new material, new perspective, new examples. You're, you know, I just spoke to a big insurance company yesterday. So I was looking at the insurance market and uh, the insurance industry and, you know, what what's disrupting that. And so I'm constantly challenging myself to uh, do research because I want to stay fresh on stage. So that's great. Being exposed to various industries that may not be direct clients that's been amazing developing skills that i'm really comfortable speaking in front of you know large groups then that's made me a better presenter you know inside the agency but more than anything it's a phenomenal biz dev mm-hmm. and it's biz dev that pays so i go out i charge a speaking fee through the bureau that i that i'm with and then somebody sees that and they go, we should get this agency in to help us out. And they call and they go, do you want to come in and be our agency? And so it's it's phenomenal. It is wonderful, wonderful business development. The trick with it, though, for the people who want to use speaking is here's two things. I don't talk about tight group work on stage. It's not like I'm showing a bunch of case studies from the tight group. And I don't I, – I, I just don't pitch from this day. I don't – and I'm not there. I have not been hired to pitch the tight group. I've been hired for my thought leadership. So it's amazing how the more you stay focused on not pitching, how people respond and want to work with you. That was another thing I grabbed off your website we didn't get to talk about was pitch slapping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, – I heard that in a meeting from a client once. Like I felt like I've just been pitch slapped and I said I'm using that as a great line um, because it is, right, that people – and it's both internally and externally. So externally – Right, consumers are exhausted because everyone's got a pitch. Everybody's got a promo. There's never been a better time to buy a Ford. There's that, you know, like whatever. Constantly, constantly, constantly. And internally, the same. It's the same issue where everyone's got a pitch. Like, here's an FYI email. Can I grab two minutes of your time? Hey, can I pick your brain? You know, um, everybody has a pitch, and we're just constantly weeding through the pitches to try and get what's most relevant and most valuable to us. If I get one more LinkedIn email that says, hey, I can help you with leads, I'm going to puke. <laughs> seriously going to puke. I might just send you one just to just – <laughs> <laughs> if someone tells me not to do something, that's when I'm like, that's a big red button. I'm hitting that. <laughs> oh, man, Ron, thank you so much for being on the show. You're, you're always entertaining and super informative. I, I love you. When can someone see you? 
because I, we talked about you speaking. Are there any like events that someone could see you at that anyone could go to? Uh, sometimes, yeah. I, you know, I speak at some of the Art of events uh, in in Toronto and across Canada. Uh, so for your Canadian listeners, into the U.S., I'm, I'm in the U.S. a lot. A lot of times for you know, I just was at the Coca Cola CMO Summit doing a keynote in in Austin, Texas. Um, so some of those are closed. So I guess the best way is to just like follow along on Twitter and. Um, you know, I typically announce stuff there and where I'm at. Yeah. The great, I mean, the great part about having a, a, a seven-letter first and last name is everything is Ron Tight. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, everything there is just at Ron Tight. Yeah, R-O-N-T-I-T-E. Uh, and we'll put those links in the show notes. Plus, we'll put a link to Everyone's an Artist, How Creativity Gives You the Edge in Everything You Do. Uh, Ron's book, I highly suggest it. Everyone needs to become an artist. And there's some of you listening to this that you need to imbue more creativity into your stuff. You know I'm talking to you. Ron, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And it's been the Garlic Marketing Show. Make sure to check out all of Ron's stuff and go see him if you get a chance. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon. That's it for the Garlic Marketing Show. If you want to get the inside scoop and the latest techniques, make sure to follow Ian Garlic on Facebook.